if I were to ask you what you thought was the greatest technological innovation of this millennium, what would come to your mind? Think about it. <laughs> this millennium. We had that last millennium. Yeah. Uh, maybe you might think of something like the iPhone or the smartphone. Maybe you think of the electric vehicle or maybe you're real super into like latest science tech and you're thinking like the Large Hadron Collider in Geneva, Switzerland, you know, the Particle Collider is like multi-billion dollar largest project mankind has ever undertaken. You would be wrong if you, would, if you answered that way. Because the greatest technological innovation of this millennium can only be YouTube TV's multi-view feature. <laughs> You're laughing, I'm dead serious. Because with multi-view, you can stream four college football games simultaneously on one screen. It is, it is a remarkable feat of engineering and it's, it just captures mankind's ability to be creative and to innovate and to inspire. And I'm not here to show for Google at all, but I just want you to appreciate with me just how wonderful it is to be able to watch four games at the same time. It's incredible. And, and you're probably asking, well, how can you, you know, decipher four streams of, of audio coming at you at the same time? And I would say, don't worry, because only one comes at you at a time. It's just whatever of the four you have highlighted is the one that you're hearing. And so you can, you can move around the screen and listen to what you want to. And if you want to focus on one game, you can click it and it goes full screen. And then when you're ready to go back, you just hit the back button and it goes back to four. Has anyone even, does anyone know what I'm even talking about? You are living in the dark ages if your hand isn't up right now. <laughs> it is amazing. And I wanted you to know that. Our passage this morning, <laughs> there's a reason I did this. Our passage this morning falls uh, within a larger context, of course, here in 1 Samuel, the book that we've been working through over the last, uh, well, almost a couple of months now. And to me, as I'm reading through these chapters, I come to chapter 28, and it feels a little bit like multi-view. It feels a little bit like that. It's as if the writer of 1 Samuel has his eye on multiple streams of things happening at the same time. And he's, he's in a way, he's sort of switching back and forth between what's going on and what he wants the reader to be focused upon. Back in chapter 27, and, and even further back than that, but especially in the immediate context there in chapter 27, the focus is on David and the situation with him. He's been he has been running from Saul. Saul is, is trying to, is pursuing him. He wants to kill him. He wants to get him out of the picture. And he, you know, he's in the cave. We heard about the cave last week. Thank you, Carl, for, for preaching so wonderfully last week. We appreciate you and, and your ministry here. Um, and, and here in chapter 27, um, to get away from Saul and to get a little bit of a break, he flees to Philistia, that, that region south of where Saul and, and the armies of Israel are. He's down in, the, in Philistine territory. Um, in fact, he's, he's near Gath, which is the hometown of Goliath, the, the great giant that David slayed as a, as a young boy. And here he is in Philistia, and he's seeking relief for himself and for the company that is with him. There's, there's 600 men and their families that have followed him, and, and it's quite a crowd to provide for. And, and there he's playing this dangerous game among God's enemies. He's, he's posing as as a friendly to the Philistines, but at the same time, he's sort of operating kind of 
in, in the shadows to defeat the Philistines. And so it's this, this sort of, he's sort of taking on different roles to, to, uh, to escape from Saul, to, to protect the people that he's with. And it's, it's, a, it's sort of a scary situation for him. I, I put myself in his shoes. If I'm deep inside enemy territory and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make sure I don't get caught, but I'm also, I don't want to betray my people. And, and it's just sort of a, an interesting plot that we're following here. And his scheme was working so well that the Philistine king of Gath insists that he join them. He's saying, David, you, I trust you with my life. You, 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 your words are like, like angels' words to me. They're, they're true, and there's nothing false in you. Would you join us, the Philistines, in our united front against the Israelites? And so David's, he's in a pickle. But we have to wait a whole chapter later until we get the rest of David's story. Because right at the height of David's drama, the writer of 1 Samuel switches over to Saul's stream here in chapter 28. And from Saul's perspective, he sees that Philistine army gathering. They have returned with a vengeance. They're thirsty for Israelite blood. And the reader, when we come to verse 3, which is where we're going to start our reading here in a moment, the reader is reminded that Samuel has not only departed from Saul, Samuel has departed from this world. Samuel's gone. He's, he has died. And Saul turns to somebody, anybody that can give him direction, that can give him insight on what to do next. And that's where we're going to pick up his story there in 1 Samuel chapter 28, beginning in verse 3. And we're going to read all the way to the end of the chapter. So it's a little bit of a lengthy narrative. I hope you can follow, follow along. I think you'll have no trouble paying attention to this particular chapter. If you know this chapter in advance, you know it's a, it's a tricky one. And uh, I'm quite confident that everyone in here, both old and young alike, will have no trouble paying attention to this story. All right, beginning in verse 3, it says, Meanwhile, me, meaning we've been talking about David, Meanwhile, Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him. He was buried in Ramah, his hometown, and Saul had banned from the land of Israel all mediums and those who consult the spirits of the dead. Remember that. Remember that Saul has done that. The Philistines set up their camp at Shunem, and Saul gathered all the army of Israel and camped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the vast Philistine army, he became frantic with fear. He asked the Lord what he should do, but the Lord refused to answer him, either by dreams or by sacred lots or by the prophets. Saul then said to his advisors, find a woman who is a medium so I can go and ask her what to do. His advisors replied, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself by wearing ordinary clothing instead of his royal robes. Then he went to the woman's home at night, accompanied by two of his men. Note the time of day. It's under a cover of darkness that Saul did this. I have to talk to a man who has died, he said. Will you call up his spirit for me? Are you trying to get me killed? The woman demanded. You know that Saul has outlawed all the mediums and all who consult the spirits of the dead. Why are you setting a trap for me? But Saul took an oath in the name of the Lord and promised, as surely as the Lord lives, nothing bad will happen to you for doing this. Finally, the woman said, well, whose spirit do you want me to call up? Call up Samuel, Saul replied. When the woman saw Samuel, she screamed, you deceived me, you are Saul. Don't be afraid, the king told her. What do you see? 
I see a God coming up out of the earth, she said. What does he look like, Saul asked. He is an old man wrapped in a robe, she replied. Saul realized it was Samuel and he fell to the ground before him. Why have you disturbed me by calling me back, Samuel asked Saul. Because I am in deep trouble, Saul replied. The Philistines are at war with me and God has left me and won't reply by prophets or dreams. So I have called for you to tell me what to do. But Samuel, Samuel replied, why ask me since the Lord has left you and has become your enemy? The Lord has done just as he said he would. He has torn the kingdom from you and given it to your rival David. The Lord has done this to you today because you refuse to carry out his fierce anger against the Amalekites. What's more, the Lord will hand you and the army of Israel over to the Philistines tomorrow, and you and your sons will be here with me. The Lord will bring down the entire army of Israel in defeat. Saul fell full length on the ground, paralyzed with fright because of Samuel's words. He was also faint with hunger, for he had not eaten for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. When the woman saw how distraught he was, she said, Sir, I obeyed your command at the risk of my life. Now do what I say and let me give you a little something to eat so you can regain your strength for the trip back. But Saul refused to eat anything. Then his advisors joined the woman in urging him to eat, so he finally yielded and got up from the ground and sat on the couch. The woman had been fattening a calf, so she hurried out and killed it. She took some flour, kneaded it into dough, and baked unleavened bread. She brought the meal to Saul and his advisors, and they ate it. And then they went out into the night. Now in this chapter, <clears throat> Saul has reached rock bottom of the moral and theological abyss. We've been tracking his trajectory over these weeks here, and we've been, we've been observing the, the, the sort of general deterioration of his life and of his rule, but this story, well, it's his coup de grace, his, his final death blow to, to him, his, his rule, his life, his hope. Everything about him is, is now reaching sort of its climactic end. And I want you to take a moment with me and just observe and take in the panorama of failure that defines his life in this chapter. He is, first of all, a full-on hypocrite. Notice back in verse 3, there's the note there by the, reader, or by the writer of 1 Samuel that Saul himself had banned from the land all mediums and those who consult the spirits of the dead. And by the way, that shouldn't have, shouldn't, that shouldn't have even needed to be something for him to do. I mean, th there should not be people like this within Israel in the first place, which is something we're going to come back to in a minute. But not only does he, 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 in verse 3, ban these types of people from being in the land, but then he turns around and secretly consults with one under cover of darkness himself. The very thing that, that he as king would have, would have banished someone to, to judgment, the judgment of death, if they had been in violation of this rule, he himself has gone and done it. And, and I just want to tell you what you already know, that the whole uh, rules for thee and not for me type of leadership is the most repugnant kind. The kind where people are, because they're in, in a position of authority, that somehow they're above the rules that they themselves set. It's disgusting and repugnant. And we should reject any leader that, that sets himself up in such a way. And Saul is a full-on hypocrite right here for doing it. Secondly, as we take in the, the panorama of failure that defines his life, who has he surrounded himself with? I mean, what kind of characters has he brought in close to be his counsel? We know that he rejected the counsel of the Lord. He has rejected God's prophet, Samuel. And so Samuel, and by extension, the word of the, word of the Lord has left him. So who has he turned to? He's turned to these, these advisors. What's so wrong with them? Well, they just happen to know where the mediums are. 
when, he's, when he finally decides he needs to consult one for direction, who does he turn to? His advisors, and they just happen to know there's, there's, a, there's a medium at Endor. There's a lesson to be learned here for sure, especially to our, our children and our teenagers. You need, and I need, but especially you at this stage in your life, need to be careful who you surround yourself with. The people who give you advice, the people who give you counsel, the people who suggest things for your life. They can have a radical influence on your belief system and your life decisions. So be careful. Take caution. Who advises you? Who you bring close? Lastly, I want you to note just how much Saul in this chapter here is operating out of fear. Did you catch that back in verse 5? As he, he takes in sort of the you know, the, the view of the Philistine masses that have assembled to, to invade upon the land of Israel. And it says in verse five that he became frantic with fear. Frantic. Has anyone ever been frantic with fear before? Let me ask you this question. If you've been frantic with fear, are you using sound judgment at that point? Most often, that's when you're at your worst. That's when you are least capable of making good decisions. That's when you're least stable or reliable or dependable. And frankly, this is never how the people of God should operate in the first place. You and I, as the people of God, should never operate out of fear. Fear leads, it doesn't lead to anything beneficial for you or for those around you. Fear results in self-protection, right? Fear causes you to, to reach out to try to grab hold of the situation to maintain some semblance of control. I, I, can, I can assuage my fear if I'm in control of my circumstances. That's the lie that fear tells us. Fear induces anxiety. It fans the flames of uncertainty. It stifles courage and conviction and decisiveness. It makes us the worst version of ourselves. And biblically speaking, I believe, and we've talked about this in in times past, I believe fear is actually the opposite of faith. You might might be saying, well, I thought doubt was the opposite of faith. Well, not necessarily. Look, look at the life of Mary. Look at the, we, we did this a few years ago in Advent. We looked at, at Mary and as she's dealing with the news that she would, she would bear a child and that he would be the son of the most high. And, and you don't see fear in Mary, but you see questions. She's questioning, not out of a place of, of disbelief, but just trying to wrap her minds around the reality. And could it really be me that, that God wants as a part of this? There's, there's doubt, there's un, uncertainty in her voice and in her heart, but there's no... There's no fear there. And oftentimes, doubt and insecurity and uncertainty is the prerequisite for faith to blossom and grow and to bloom. But not fear. Fear is the opposite of faith. Faith is that movement from self-preservation to self-abandonment. You see that in Mary's life. The abandonment of the self over to God. From self-protection to God's protection. From my need to control my circumstances to a a surrendering of control to God. Paul says in Romans 8, 15, you have not received a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. Fear is not of the Lord. Not the fear that we're talking about. There's the fear of the Lord, which is akin to respect. That's something different. I'm talking about the type of fear you experience when when you're not trusting in the Lord. Paul says, you've not received a spirit like that. You've received a spirit of sonship. Sons and daughters of God. 
You may not understand everything. You may have your questions, but your life is not run by fear. And I encourage you in myself, as you examine your own hearts and in whatever decision you're making, what to do or what not to do, to never allow fear to be the driving force in, in what or how you choose. That's what Saul's doing here. Saul is making decisions driven by his fear. And in his desperation, he crosses what really are very strict, forbidden theological boundaries because he's seeking supernatural insight and guidance from a mistress of necromancy. Do you know what the word necromancy means? So necromancy is, is basically, a, it's a word that is formed from two other words. And those words come from, from Greek, from the Greek. So the first word, first Greek word is necros, which means corpse, right? If you ever heard of a necropolis, that's another one of those wonderful Greek words with two ideas put together. You have the, the necros, meaning corpse or death, and then you have polis, which means city. So death city, it's a cemetery. An ancient cemetery is called a necropolis. Or maybe you in the health, health industry, uh, you're familiar with like necrosis. If someone has an injury or they've got some sort of disease or something is, maybe the blood supply is cut off to a, a limb, what begins to happen to the tissue? It dies, doesn't it? And that's what necrosis is. It's the death of healthy tissue. So that's the first part of this word necromancy. The second comes from the Greek word mantia, which means divination. And divination is essentially seeking knowledge about the future or knowledge of the unknown by some sort of supernatural means. And so necromancy is essentially seeking counsel about the future from the dead. Something explicitly forbidden throughout the scriptures from Leviticus to Deuteronomy, Galatians and Acts, from cover to cover, the Bible forbids this type of of behavior as an abomination to God. Yahweh forbids such practices, not because they're silly, and that's oftentimes how how Christians tend to deal with, with that sort of dark, sort of magic, sorcery type of world, we dismiss it as something silly, and God does not dismiss it as silly, He, he treats it as wicked. And there's a difference between those two things. And you and I have to be very clear in our own understanding and our own posture towards that sort of world. The Bible does not forbid it because it's silly, but because it's wicked. The use of magic or spiritism or altered states of consciousness, all these things that, that pagan, sinful, wicked humanity has, has, has done for the entirety of human history, all these things to, to connect with the supernatural in some sort of attempt to master nature or, or to master time or to master fate, no matter how well intended, it is a violation of the created order and it exposes the individual to the demonic influence. It is not to be played with. And this is especially important. And by the way, I did not plan this sermon for this Sunday because two days from now is Halloween. That was purely incidental. I promise. I didn't come in like, oh, I have a beef against Halloween. I actually love Halloween for different reasons. But this is especially important considering this is the week of Halloween because the world has taken what Halloween originally was. See, listen, this is a whole other conversation for another time. We don't have time for it necessarily now. We tend to think Halloween was a bad thing that Christians are trying to make good. And I want to tell you, Halloween originally was a good thing that the world has made bad. So I'm all for redeeming it. Again, that's another conversation. But the world has taken Halloween and has co-opted it and perverted it and turned it into something that is a celebration of darkness. And you and I have to be very careful as Christians how we enter into this week. 
especially those of us with children. The Christian is not to dabble with or to put their trust in mediums or shamans or talismans, but in the word of God alone. Full stop. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13, the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow, exposing our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in creation is hidden from God. Things are hidden from you and from me. And that is by design. It is not ours to know all things. It is ours to know and to trust the one who knows all things. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one to whom we are accountable. It should be no surprise then that the one who has abandoned the truth of God's word in our story here has turned to necromancy for help. But don't miss the point of the story. <laughs> All right? Because as I'm reading, every time I come to this story, I'm struck with, with what actually happens. Because actual Samuel does show up. And we have to be careful when we read this that we don't view this as, a, as some sort of legitimizing sort of witchcraft or, or dark sorcery or, or, you know, the dark arts or whatever you want to call it. That's not what this story is doing. It's not saying, hey, this is okay because it works every now and then. On the contrary, God permits this to happen here to prove what the scriptures have already declared. What is that? Well, that only death and judgment can come from this sort of wickedness. It's the exception that proves the rule. We see an illustration of what happens to those who pursue this for answers or for truth. Samuel shows up not to give Saul what he's seeking. Samuel shows up to pronounce Saul's death. He shows up to reiterate what God has already told him. God's word is still speaking to Saul, even from the grave. His word that says that God has judged Saul for his disobedience and has given his kingdom over to David. And despite Saul's rejection of, of it, God's word has still come to him, whether by hook or by crook. God's word always accomplishes it, what he intends for it to do. It goes out and it never returns empty to him. It never returns fruitless or void. It always accomplishes exactly what he intends to do. And to the faithful, God's word comes as, as light and as life and as hope and as truth. But to the wicked, it comes as judgment and as doom. So my question for you and for me is where do you turn in your times of need? And you're probably saying, well, I've, I've never gone to a medium and thank God for that. But there are other alternatives to God's word that people turn to over and over and over again in their pursuit of comfort or truth or security or peace or whatever it is we feel we need that's lacking in our lives. What are we turning to? Where are we going in those times of of difficulty for insight or comfort or direction. Listen, Saul's biggest problem is not that he consulted a medium. I think his consultation of the witch at Endor was symptomatic of a deeper and more fundamental problem, and that is his disposition of rebellion and hard-heartedness towards God and his word. That's the problem. That's, that's at the root of the problem of his life. And I say, God save me. 
God save us from such rebellious, stubborn hearts. The story of Saul from beginning to end is one great cautionary tale for us that teaches us the inevitable end result of what happens when we harden our hearts towards God and his rule. This is the outcome. If, if God has spoken to you in any way in your life and you have not received it but have hardened your heart to it and you persist in that, what is the end result of that going to be? Look no further than the life of Saul. And that's why the psalmist, we pointed this out twice already in this series, and this will be the third time. That's why the psalmist in Psalm 95, and then the writer of Hebrews who reiterates it, implores us that today, please hear the todayness of Psalm 95, that today, if you hear his voice, actually, it says when you hear his voice, it's not a matter of if God has spoken, God has spoken. And he's speaking still. And I'm confident that despite the, the limitations and the frailty of the messenger right here this morning, he's still speaking to you personally. And the scriptures say, when you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. How do you harden your heart? When you, when you don't believe what you hear? when you reject it as authoritative over your life, when you decide, you know what? My way sounds a little better than God's way. When you don't take it serious, maybe when you put it off for another time. There's a million ways that you and I are all guilty of, at some point in our lives, of hardening our hearts to the word of God. And the scriptures implore us, don't, don't do that. When you hear him speak, say, speak, Lord, your servant listens. I'm listening. Op open, open your heart. Soften your heart to the word of God. The test of faith is not how you once responded to it a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And a lot of Christians are coasting on a past decision. God was moving in their lives. They said yes, and it set them on a trajectory and they've just been kind of cruising along. Listen, the test of faith is not your response to the word of God in some past experience. And it's not how you might choose, decide to respond sometime tomorrow or sometime in the future. No, the test of faith is whether you will hear his voice and not harden your heart today. Yes, Samuel has taught us that God is tender and patient and long-suffering, yes, his greatest desire is to draw you close, to come and, and stand in your presence and, and draw you near to himself. But you and I are only afforded the window of opportunity in the present to hear and to respond to his voice, to choose him and his word as life. But as we see in the life of Saul, to reject him and his word is death. The writer has taken Saul and David and has juxtaposed them in multi-view. We see their stories. We're watching them at the same time. And we're, we're bouncing from, 
from one channel to the other to catch the audio, the stream of what's being said, what's happening. But we're watching both these stories and they're placed side by side to teach us this story, to teach us this principle about accepting the word of the Lord and softening our hearts to, to God is life, but rejecting the word of the Lord and hardening our hearts to it is death. And, and we have these two stories that in place right here side by side so we can compare the narratives. We can see this principle work, working out in real time right before our eyes. David, he's caught in, among, amongst the enemies of God. He's, he's kind of, he's in a difficult spot. He's kind of trapped. He's, his life is on the line. The, the 600 men and all their families that have pledged loyalty to him, their lives are on the line. There's, there's a weighty complexity to David's story and we don't know the outcome yet. We don't know what, what hardship and what suffering and what challenges await the people in this stream here. But then we look over here and we have Saul. And what's his problem? Well, the word of the Lord has left him. And as we look at these two, these two streams, my question for you is who, who was worse off? Who had it worse? Now, I know you know the answer to that question. I know you know it because it's, it's plainly obvious. But what happens when we take the answer to that question and we apply it to our own lives? Right, because I know there's people in here who are genuinely undergoing trials. There's real suffering amongst some of your lives. And you might be going through the most difficult, challenging, painful trial of your life right now. But here's the thing. If God and his word are in your life, if he is by your side, you can endure it. Can't you? Is there anything in this that this world or this life can throw at you that is too great for God and his word to see you through? There isn't. But without God and his word in your life, there can be no peace. You know, we sing that song, we say, um, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. You know, that's, that's the, the anthem of the believer's heart, the one who has God in their life. But for those who do not, those who have hardened their hearts to the truth of God's word, who, do, who are not abiding in it moment by moment, there is no strength for today or bright hope for tomorrow. There is no peace or strength or hope to be found in any situation in life. You could have everything going right. You could have all the luxuries of the world. You could have all the circumstances have aligned to make you happy and comfortable and content. And yet apart from God and apart from the truth of his word, there is no life. There is no peace. There is no joy. There is no hope for you. Look at Saul at the end of our story. It's not just random trivia that we're given to conclude the chapter. There's a point in learning that, that Saul is faint with hunger. He's withered. He's diminished. And, and the, 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 the people around him are trying to take care of him and comfort him. So they, they, they slaughter the fattened calf and they, they make fresh bread. And you can almost picture him getting the massage. Like, it's okay, Saul. You know, he's getting the mani-pedi. He's, like, he's getting the royal treatment, right? He has everything he needs, worldly speaking, at his disposal. All the comfort, all the peace, all the people at his, you know, 
just around him to take care of him and to, and to provide for him. And yet, you and I know that despite everything around him, all the royal treatment, Saul is nothing more than a dead man walking. He's a dead man walking. There is no true peace or joy to be found in the luxuries of this world apart from the presence of God. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his own soul? Sinful man goes to great lengths to surround himself with all the pleasures of life but has nothing but death to look forward to when the end comes. That's sad and pathetic. And yet so many of us are spending so much time and energy and resources in the pursuit of worldly things. Things that don't matter. Things that you don't get to keep. Things that can never provide the meaning or the purpose or the life that you were designed for. And like Saul, people who pursue the worldly things at the expense of the truth of God's word, they eat, they drink, they make merry, and then verse 25, they go out into the night. The exact expression that we hear later in John chapter 13 about Judas, who betrayed the Lord himself and then did what? He went out into the night. People who exchanged the truth for a lie, who substitute the things of God with the things of the world, have nothing but weeping and gnashing of teeth and outer darkness to look forward to. So what should Saul have been doing? Throughout this chapter, the previous chapters, throughout the entirety of his rule, the entirety of his life, what should, but as it culminates here in chapter 28, what should Saul have been seeking what was it that he needed most? Was it information? We know that's what he's after. Is that what he really needs? Does he need information? Does he need a battle plan? Does Saul need wise military counsel? Does he need a new strategy? <laughs> Whoever said that, you're right. Saul didn't need information from a dead prophet. He needed restored intimacy with the living God. He didn't need to be reunited with Samuel. He needed to be reunited with Yahweh. Not for information's sake, but for communion's sake. That's the greatest need for every person, in every situation, in every time, and in every location. For every one of you right here this morning, it's not, you don't need the benefits of God. What God can do for you, how God can fix your problems, that's how we tend to go to him. When I need something from him, then I go to him. And I'm telling you, that's not your greatest need. Your greatest need is not the benefits of God or what God can do for you. Your greatest need is fellowship with God himself. 
And how is that need met in your life and in mine? How do we make sure that we don't fall into the same traps and follow the same trajectory as good old Saul here in our, in our story? Well, Hebrews 12, 2 gives us the answer. By keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Apart from Jesus, faith doesn't even begin. And apart from Jesus, it has no chance of making it to the end. And if you're going to find restored intimacy with God and persevere in that to the very end, that only happens when you keep your eyes on him. Saul is the very picture of rebellion against God and his word. Sinful man destined for darkness and death. But then there's David. And David's, really, the main thing David does for us in the final analysis is he, he points beyond himself. David, David's whole contribution to the scriptures and to theology and into our worldview and into our, the, the, the Christian enterprise, David's contribution is not in what he completes, but what in he anticipates. David points ahead to a greater David. The one they called the son of David. The word of God made flesh. The very Lord of heaven and earth itself. He is the light of the world who stepped into our darkness, who went down into the, the very depths of what sin has produced and why it's so that he might rescue and redeem us from it. He came, he died, and he is the God seen coming up out of the earth. In the very words of the enemy of God in this story, what did she see? I see a God coming out of the earth. It was prefiguring the one to come who conquered the grave who conquered the darkness, who made God's enemies his very footstool. And he came out of the earth to declare a word that is either light and life or judgment and doom. So today, friends, if you, when you hear his voice, <laughs> do not harden your heart. Hear him now speaking to you. Listen to these words from Revelation 1, 17 and 18. Hear him. These are the words of Jesus to his church today. What's his first word here? Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Thank you, Pastor Richard, for your prayer earlier. It's a, an honest acknowledgement of the world we find ourselves in today. Have you watched the news lately and been tempted to fear. Hear the word of Jesus. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and the grave. Are your eyes fixed on him today, friends? Are you looking to the one who is master of the, of the underworld? Who better to turn to when times are dark than the one who alone has the power to transform darkness into light? 
Jesus offers what you and I need most, not information, not knowledge of the future, not the means to control fate or to control nature or to control our circumstances. No, he's the one who offers what we need most, that is intimacy and fellowship and communion with the living God and the wisdom and the light and the light of his word. Hear him calling out to you, to draw you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. Will you listen to his voice today? I know you will. Pastor Jeff, as he's making his way up, let's, let's join together in prayer. Lord, we, uh, I pray that by a work of your spirit, you would enable your people here to join with the psalmist in declaring that you, how sweet your words taste to me. They are like honey. They're sweeter than honey. Lord, I know my own posture towards your word has so far to go. Would you help me? Would you help us to turn away from all the, the other voices, all, to, to, cha- to tune into one stream, <laughs> to, to turn off multi-view, and to focus, to zero in on one voice. The one voice that alone speaks truth, that speaks life, that is light to darkness, that offers encouragement and counsel and direction, and at times rebuke, but at all times, what is for our benefit and for your glory. Lord, would we be a people that would heed the, the lessons of, of 1 Samuel that have been just repeated week after week after week and become, like John Wesley said, a people of one book. S- spoken by one who read a thousand times more books than any one of us in here has read, probably. And yet, despite all of his reading and all of his studies, Wesley boiled his life down to being a man of one book. Lord, do we be a people of one book today? Help us to have soft hearts towards you and to seek you in the fellowship that you offer, even when we don't get the answers we desire. Lord, you are our heart's desire, not exhaustive knowledge of all things. So Lord, come and fulfill our desire and make us uh, one with you. And may we be a people who, who take the truth of who you are out into the world, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.